Thank you for listening to season two of Spotless, Breaking the Boundaries of Television. Presented by two media powerhouses, Triple Lift and Advertising Week, Spotless brings you in-depth conversations with the leaders who are driving this evolution. So, you know, listen up. Evolution, we came from monkeys, now we're humans. Who knows where we are next? You're going to learn something on this podcast. Sarah Kate Ellis was named president and CEO of GLAAD in early 2014 after a successful career as a media executive. Under her leadership, Ellis has evolved GLAAD from a media watchdog organization to one of the most powerful LGBTQ cultural change agents across industries. Ellis launched the GLAAD Media Institute, which focuses on research into LGBTQ representation and acceptance, consulting on LGBTQ storylines in media, ads, news, and Hollywood, and training activists on LGBTQ media advocacy and storytelling that creates change. For the past several years, Ellis has brought LGBTQ issues to the forefront at the World Economic Forum and has expanded GLAD's work in advertising by partnering with global brands on LGBTQ inclusive marketing, public relations, and ad campaigns. Sarah Kate, it's so nice to meet you and to have you on Spotless. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. This is really, really exciting for us. I would love to get started by talking about your impressive career, which which spans so many categories. How did you get started and what led you into the world of media to begin with? You know, it was by accident, honestly. I wanted to do something that was creative, but I'm not a creative. Like, I, I, I'm not a creative director. I am way more of a business person. And I, a headhunter, I started at Condé Nast House and Garden, the relaunch of that. I won't name the year, but it was in the late 1900s, let's say. And immediately excited me. The power of producing something that went out to people that curated or shifted the narrative or created a narrative, I just thought, how phenomenal. And I grew up in a house of news. My parents were news junkies. You know, you didn't have 24-hour cable then. You had the 5 o'clock news, and we always had that on. And then I think it was the 7 o'clock news. So those two things, I understood the power of media and that I could participate in it was really exciting to me. So it sounds like storytelling has always been a big part of your background. Absolutely. I understand the power of storytelling. And I understood that from the very beginning of life. And because I was affected by other people's stories. And when you can tell your own story, you can have hopefully manifest some positivity out there and help people. Absolutely. Could you just go into a little bit more about your professional life before your tenure at GLAAD began? Yeah. So I moved from magazine to magazine. My biggest time was at Real Simple Magazine as the head of their marketing. I soon took over the what was called the Lifestyle Group, which was about 13 brands, both digital and print, which was at Time Inc. at that time. And then I was at Condé Nast for several years. That's where I started my career. I went back to Vogue and worked for a little while there as a creative services director. So it really was all over magazines and digital and the emergence of digital. We were there when magazines needed to shift 
into the digital space and a lot of challenges came with that. It was fascinating time to be in that industry. And then what happened was, you know, my wife and I got pregnant at the exact same time. And I was at Real Simple Magazine and the editor-in-chief asked if she could follow our story, our trimesters as two pregnant women together. And we agreed to it because we knew the power of storytelling. And we knew that we were bringing children into this world and we needed to make the world a better place for them. And that ended up becoming a book called Times Two that my wife and I co-authored together. And that's actually how I ended up at GLAD. I mean, I always knew GLAD. I went to GLAD Media Awards because I sat at the tables and stuff and I was the chair of the Time Inc. Out organization. But I went to GLAD because this book was coming out and we were going to be in the limelight. And I was very concerned about it because it was so personal. And they really helped us understand how to navigate and what to do and what not to do. So it was really funny, you know, several years later when the search came to my front door and it just seemed like it was a calling, not a career move. You're now approaching eight years as president and CEO of GLAD. That's amazing. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about what GLAD is and the company's history and the type of work that you do? Absolutely. So GLAD is a 35-year-old media advocacy organization. We started during the AIDS crisis in New York City, and we started as trying to, we were watchdogs for the press and the media and journalists because they were telling a story that was villainizing and defaming primarily really gay men during the AIDS crisis. And so we really started to hold them accountable. At the same time, our genius founders realized that not only did they have to be a watchdog, but they needed to humanize our community and bring visibility to our community. And because we were only known as stereotypes, we had very low visibility. And so they started lobbying Hollywood to include us in storytelling. And that has been a big part of our work. Today, though, because the way that culture moves and shapes, it used to be a one-way street out of Hollywood. It is now out of Silicon Valley. It is now out of D.C. It is now out of CEO, Fortune 500 CEO's offices. And so we've expanded with that because the way I see us is that a cultural, as a cultural change agent. And, and that's why, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but we just launched a report on the social media platforms called the Social Media Safety Index, rating the top social media platforms on how safe it is for LGBTQ people. That's why we've launched a program with advertising. So you see that we've been expanding. But since I've been there, just to give you an idea of what almost eight years looks like, when I started, we didn't have marriage equality. So that was the first order of business was to shape the conversation and the narrative about marriage equality and take it from a legal right to a matter of who gets to marry who they love, right? And and building out love is love and building out who are the people that are being directly affected by this and putting people out there in the media. We also ended the ban on LGBTQ people in the Boy Scouts. We ended the ban on the St. Patrick's Parade, not allowing LGBTQ people. We founded the GLAD Media Institute, which consults with the top Hollywood producers, the top CEOs globally, multinational CEOs, content creators, Silicon Valley, you name it. 
And we've moved into new genres of media, including video games and kids and family. So it's been a very robust eight years and there's still so much more to do. And it's super exciting. Well, congratulations. And the impact is felt so distinctly in terms of representation today and where the conversations are at. And you're right, even in eight years, which can be short and also long, I think so much evolution and progress has been made. Speaking about some of these projects and initiatives that you've been a part of, Glad spearheaded so many of them. I'd love to talk about the launch of the Visibility Project and the campaign to drive sustainable LGBTQ inclusion in ads and marketing. Can you talk about this initiative and the importance of LGBTQ inclusion in advertising? So there's two main factors that drove this. First is the Edelman Trust Barometer, which comes out of the agency Edelman. And they put this out every year to look at where trust is in America and and society. What they found and reported was that people trust brands more than they trust the government. So when we start to hear people talk about the fourth arm of the government is Fortune 500 companies. When we see companies moving more into the social justice space, a lot of it has to do with that too, because their employees are demanding it and they trust their employers. So there was that piece to it. And then the second piece of insight that we used was that as reported by the Gina Davis Institute, 1.8% of advertisements that show at the Cannes Lions Festival, which is the big advertising festival it's in the south of France, only 1.8 of characters in those ads are LGBTQ. So the third piece of research, I said two, I meant three, is the Gallup poll. The Gallup poll recently came out and said that 16%, that's one in six, of 18 to 24-year-olds identify as LGBT. You can see how this is all forming a picture of, and then we know advertising is so pervasive, right? It's everywhere you are, whether you're young, old, in between. And so we wanted to have a bigger impact in that space. And we were very fortunate that Procter & Gamble has been at the forefront of being diverse and inclusive and really taking themselves to task on this. And so we partnered with them to create the project visibility. And that is us offering our services in a consultative way in, in which we have worked for years to both brands and ad agencies to help them become more inclusive because they have extraordinary power to accelerate acceptance for the LGBTQ community and for intersectionally too, obviously, not just LGBTQ, but also LGBTQ community. The LGBTQ community is incredibly intersectional. And that, so we want to utilize that power and we are reaching out to them now to engage them. This is just an incredible accomplishment in the world of media and advertising to bring this to the forefront. One of the studies that came out of this was the LGBTQ inclusion and advertising and agency perspectives study. Could you share any of the findings from that? And if any of the results were surprising to you? Absolutely. So I just want to take you back one second to 
2020, which we can all remember. But the beginning of 2020, before we were hit with COVID, we were at the World Economic Forum with P&G revealing our first study. And our first study looked at media representation through the eyes and the lens of non-LGBTQ people. And we wanted to know if that was the barrier to inclusion. Did they feel like, you know, they weren't comfortable with it, that they would have a bad view of the company if they included LGBTQ people. And what we found was the exact opposite. It was actually a triple home run because one, non-LGBTQ people reported that it helped them understand the community better. It grew their acceptance of the community. They wanted it. Number two is they felt more comfortable about the companies, that they treated their employees better, that they were more inclusive in their workspaces and places, and that they were more apt to buy from them, 70%. So once we had that piece of research, and that was, you know, the methodology was Gen Pop, U.S., we decided, okay, so the non-LGBTQ people are not the barrier. Where is the barrier? And that's when we went to 200 brand advertisers and ad agencies. And we interviewed them to find out, okay, folks, you know, the buck stops with you. What's going on? And that was fascinating, too. What we found was 60% of the brand and agency executives felt were concerned about backlash from the LGBTQ community, not from the general population, not from non-LGBTQ people, but from our own community. And they felt that in terms of their risk assessment, what they determined was that it was riskier to go out there with an ad, inclusive ad, fearing backlash from the LGBTQ community than not to engage at all. That's a huge problem, but I love problems because there's always solutions. And that's where project visibility came from is that is the solution. So our job is to make them more comfortable, is to give them cultural competency. And there is no doubt, like I was saying about the Gallup poll, this community is changing rapidly. And parts of our community that lived in the dark for so long are coming to the light. And that's confusing people. And it's moving quickly, as I said. And so our job is to help people understand that. And and it changes day to day. So really what we do is work with these folks to help them understand what gender nonconforming means. You know, what all of these terms that they might not be familiar with are and how to incorporate them into their ads. Because quite frankly, based on the statistics that I'm running for you, you absolutely have to include the LGBTQ community internally and externally using your power and voice as these large brands. Because if we're that size of the population and you're going to want the best talent, you're going to want to retain the best talent, and you're going to want to build your consumer base, you need to be you know, attracting us from an HR perspective and marketing to us in the in an authentic and true way from from a brand perspective. It's so amazing because that leads right into a quote that I was going to share of yours back to you, which is as part of the partnership with PNG, uh, you said Pantene is setting the standard for authentic inclusion of LGBTQ people and stories among brands that transcend industries. 
and specifically the Pantene campaign, the Trans Inclusive Home for the Holidays, which was a series of extremely moving, beautiful ads from the perspective of a community that has a reaction that seems to be shared amongst many members. Could you talk about the series, what kind of response you received, and why authenticity is is so, so important in this representation? So I always say the perfect insight, the perfect brand, the perfect moment, really not only, you know, for me, baseline is including, you know, a gay couple, a same-sex couple in an ad, but doing that, using an insight to drive, to drive a ad that is then released at the, at, at a moment that it's most needed. We know that, and, and PNG has a statistic, I'm not going to try and quote it, but it's very high <laughs> that for the LGBTQ community hair, especially for the trans community is a real identifying factor for them, right? We know as the LGBTQ community going home for the holidays and hide and having to potentially hide who you are again, go back into the closet, whatever it is, is a very stressful time for members of our community. So PNG worked with us and our trans experts out of the Glad Media Institute to cast the transgender chorus of Los Angeles in this ad. And they had trans people in front of the camera and behind the camera. And that's also a big factor in getting it right. And the response was enormous. It was huge. There was a ton of earned media. I mean, feature stories on CNN.com and people.com. And then the social media response was off the charts in terms of support and helping people understand the trans community and what matters to them and who they are in this world. It is an incredibly beautiful campaign. If anybody listening hasn't seen it, please go online and check out these spots and these stories. It's an amazing synthesis of brand authenticity and clearly GLAD's involvement in making this happen. Building off the importance of diversity and inclusion in advertising, this goes beyond even brands for adults, but Sesame Street just released an episode called Family Day, which introduces a family with two gay dads. And after a year where we've seen such an increase in social awareness, this seems like beyond a step in the right direction, but we all know that there is more work to do. Do you think that we're going to continue to see programs and advertising on TV across different mediums that promote inclusion and acceptance at this level? Absolutely. I think in one week, if I could, I think Sesame Street was inclusive and the first active gay NFL player came out, right? And I just thought, wow, those are two enormous brands that are American pie. And here they are helping to lead the way in driving inclusivity and diversity. So that was a big week. You know, three years ago, I announced we would be focusing on LGBTQ inclusion in kids and family TV because I always felt families like mine needed to see themselves. I knew my kids needed to see their family on television. It's really powerful. Um, And we've seen enormous advances. We created an advisory committee around this with some of the greatest content creators in this field. And we started in 2018, we started our first ever award at the Glad Media Awards to to honor kids and family TV shows. And we quickly had to bump those, the number of nominees up from five. The first year, we weren't even sure we were going to fill five nominees. And then the second year, we were up to 10. 
We had to increase it. Um, and now we've added a second category. So it is growing, it is expanding, and it is critical that it does. And I mean, if nothing else proved that, let's talk about COVID and how many hours of television all of us and our kids and our families have taken in over the past year and a half. It's been extraordinary. And imagine spending a year watching television and not seeing yourself. How horrible. So it that's not the case anymore. We're going to see a lot more down the road. We're doing a lot of work on this, and I'm really excited where this is headed. It is a step in the right direction uh, in a world where not everything moves in the right direction, but so, so glad to see this. You mentioned GLAD's uh, social media safety index earlier, and I would love if you could share a bit more about the key findings that, that GLAD procured from this evaluation and what the study is about. Absolutely. Um, so the so this came out of, you know, I, I think you, you get my trip. I, I like insights. <laughs> I like data. Um, the ADL reports that 67% of LGBTQ people report being harassed online. That far outseeds any other marginalized community. Um, it outpaces it double. Um, and so not only that, on the other side of it, the LGBTQ community is the most censored on these social media platforms. As a place that has served as a lifeline for our community, an organizing tool, it has also been weaponized uh, against our community. And so we decided that if we're not protecting our community on social media, nobody is. And so we started, uh, now this has been a long time coming. It takes, you know, you're trying to boil the ocean when you're talking about social media platforms. Um, and we've been working for years on this, but we finally produced our first report measuring the top five social media platforms and we were going to grade them. So we do an annual report called where we are on TV, where we grade networks, streaming services and cable networks and based on representation. So this is very much that, but it's based on safety for our community, misinformation, hate speech, all of those types of things, harassment. And we were going to grade all the platforms. And so what happened was all the platforms failed. And we thought, you know what? Let's not go out in that negative space. Let's go out with a plan. Let's go out offensively, right? And so we developed actually a plan for all five platforms. That's Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, um, YouTube. And we gave them a roadmap to making their, their spaces safer for the LGBTQ community. And now we, were, we are holding them accountable in real time. I always say you can't move what you don't measure. And so before it really felt like boiling the ocean, trying to keep up with it all. But now that we have assembled a quite um, amazing um, advisory committee in Silicon Valley. We have a woman named Jenny Olson who's leading this work there. We are able to now hold those platforms accountable. And, you know, there are a lot of really good actors in these companies who want to see change. Um, and so they're already instituting a lot. We're going to see great work come out of that. That is incredible. And we, we completely share that notion that measuring the information is the only way to implement action. There's another project that I 
particularly love as somebody who works in the creative space, which is GLAD's partnership with Getty Images and the guidebook for featuring best practices for LGBTQ inclusive imagery and guidelines for Getty Image photographers. What was the impetus behind this guidebook and how do you see it able to make a difference in the representation of LGBTQ people in advertising? Thanks for asking about this one. This is an enormous one. I mean, not that they all aren't. I guess taking on social media is pretty enormous as well. But this has also far-reaching impact. The guidance we've created with Getty Images seeks really to give brands and businesses of all sizes the confidence the confidence that they need to depict the LGBTQ community in inclusive, authentic, I use that word a lot, and thoughtful ways without the fear of the backlash that we were talking about or the fear of getting it wrong. This also is a tool to empower them. So instead of shying away from depictions or relying on stereotypes, of LGBTQ people, we've created guidance on how to authentically represent the LGBTQ community that will create lasting connections. And this ultimately is increasing representation of LGBTQ people in communications across all platforms. So it's a really amazing partnership and long, long, long overdue. The imagery is beautiful and it is so much more than, like you said earlier, you know, just maybe a, a gay couple together. It's, it's these beautiful images of humanity is what it really is. And, and I think it truly will offer a, an incredible resource. In addition to PNG and Getty, who you're working with, and Sesame Street, can you talk about other brands or notable advertisers, or even like you referenced shows that you've graded that are doing a really great job in leading the charge for diversity and inclusion on the TV screen and beyond. So TV, I could talk about for days. I will pinpoint one because I'm looking for its replacement right now, which is Pose. I think Pose brought to the small screen, the humanizing of the trans community and a education of the subculture or the culture of a part of our community that has existed for a long time. Also, what Ryan Murphy did in that was empower all the right people, both behind the camera and in front of it. And so the writers were trans people, the creators were trans people. And I think that is one of the gold standards of how to do a show where it's entertaining, it's enlightening, and it's emotionally connective. And it helps to move acceptance forward because it's humanizing people. I think that's one of the bright lights. And of course, MJ just got an Emmy nomination, which is unbelievable. And we had put together a whole campaign around that, you know, as part of the Emmy nominations campaign. So I'm really proud of that as well. We work with so many brands who are getting it right. You know, Skittles is one of them. I love their campaign because I don't know if you've seen it, but during the month of June, they take out the color, the rainbow, and it's just gray and white. And they speak out against anti-trans bills. And so that's really where the rubber meets the road. I always say you can't just market to our community. You must join our movement and you must become a part of our community. You have to remember, we are a marginalized community and pride has a lot of glamour to it now. It is a protest. 
And we are still not equal. We do not have the Equality Act. It is stalled in the Senate. You know, the trans community has the highest disproportionate suicide rate, unemployment rate, murder rate. And they are one of the most spectacular communities that doesn't have as big a platform. It's coming. You know, we're really working on that media representation, and I think it's coming along. But I think that's really important for brands and marketers to realize as they are approaching us as a community. And I think it's amazing. When I started out, you know, we were talking about my career. I did not feel safe coming out. And I wasn't in hostile environments, but it just wasn't okay. And it wasn't what you did. And that became who you were, not the work that you had done. And so your career was being based on your identity and not your performance. And I think that's changed dramatically. I like to think it's changed dramatically in a lot of spaces. It hasn't in some industries, and you would be really surprised. It's like 20 years ago in some places. But that's really at the crux of people who do it right and are getting it right. It is a year-long effort, not a month-long effort. It needs to be organic. And it really just comes back to, I think, what is at the heart of your work and your career, which is storytelling and putting the faces of people out behind the scenes, in front of the scenes, and including everybody in the right way. It's such a beautiful message. Before we wrap up, do you have any advice that you'd give to a young adult starting in the industry who is concerned that their identity or sexual orientation will negatively impact their career? You know, for those folks, I would always say safety is paramount. Always safety first. And then, you know, I'd speak more to the supervisor honestly, that if you want to recruit and retain talent, the best talent, you need to be LGBTQ inclusive. And I always say that you need to create the culture that is going to attract the greatest talent. And, you know, one thing I will say, well, I have this audience that I feel really impassioned about is that chief diversity officers have to have real power in organizations. And by that, I mean, they need to be reporting into the CEO and not a function of HR. When they're a function of HR, they don't have as much power or budget to create the change that needs to be created. I don't care how great your company is on these issues. We all know, based on the society and the structure that has been in place for centuries, that we need diversity officers empowered. It is so important. And I think that's an amazing point to make for everyone listening. We like to end our spotless conversations with a prediction on the future of television. But for our conversation, I'd like to be a little bit more specific and ask about your prediction on the future of inclusivity in advertising and how you see the industry evolving to reflect the times. I think in the release of Project Visibility, I think in one of the quotes I said, like, this industry is 10 years behind Hollywood. So I would like to see in the next year or two, us really close that gap from 10 years to getting to the modern day. And I think we can do it. I think we can, we're going to have a majority of the Fortune 100 brands joining us. We're going to have the big ad agencies joining us. And we're going to create the guardrails and the best practices for inclusion in advertising. And I think that's going to happen over the next three years for the duration of the program. I'm really excited about it. And my one thing is what I can't wait to see is the right brand with the right 
message at the right moment, because that will have a pervasive change on society. It absolutely will, as you have already had a pervasive change on society. We are so lucky to have had this conversation with you and cannot wait to benefit from the next group of studies that you come up with and all the initiatives that GLAD is going to continue to roll out to benefit all communities. Sarah Kate Ellis, thank you so much for joining us on Spotless. To find out more about GLAD's project visibility, please visit glad.org slash visibility dash project.